Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. A few weeks ago, LeBron James passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to become the all-time scoring leader in NBA history. No one has ever scored more points than LeBron, and probably no one ever will at this point. And this has re-sparked the debate of who is the greatest player of all time. Is it LeBron or is it Jordan? Now, we're, we probably can't settle this debate this morning. I hear a few people I agree with. So I, I, if you can't tell, I'll give you my point of view. I think the ultimate goal in team sports is to win championships. One of these two players has never lost an NBA Finals series, and the other one is the leading scorer in the NBA. So that's where I stand on it. But today, what I do want to do is try to settle maybe some other greatest of all time debates. So I've got a few questions for us. And we're just going to vote. We're going to vote by raising our hand to see if we can settle some of these other greatest of all time debates. The first one is, where is the greatest place to go on vacation? So we have here on one side, you see this beautiful picture of the ocean with the clear waters, nice shady sand. There's probably a cool breeze. It looks like a great place to relax and maybe read a book. And then on the other side, you see the mountains, which is full of dirt and bugs. (laughs) So by raising your hands, who would say the beach is the greatest place to go on vacation? And who would say the mountains is the greatest place to go on vacation? We'll pray for all of you after the service. This one, let's try not to get a little heated on this one. What's the greatest North Carolina basketball school? Now, I know there's a lot. I only picked the big three. I would have loved to put UNC Charlotte up there, but it's not even in the running. So we have Chapel Hill, Duke, and NC State. How many people would say that Carolina is the greatest basketball school in North Carolina history? All right. How many people would say Duke is the greatest North Carolina basketball school? How many people love Jesus and say NC State is the greatest (laughs) basketball school? All right. Here's one a little less heated. When is the best time for breakfast? And I'm not talking about just cereal or maybe like Pop-Tarts or something, even though I eat cereal like every day. I'm talking like nice, fluffy pancakes with some eggs, bacon, biscuits and gravy, maybe some grits. If you're from Shelby, you're probably going to have some liver mush in there or some country ham. When's the greatest time to eat breakfast? Is it in the morning or is it like the modes did last night, breakfast for dinner? How many of you would say the morning is the best time for breakfast? How many of you would say dinner is the best time for breakfast? How many of you, I'm going to give you a third option and say, I love this and I'll eat it any time of the day. (laughs) There's my people. There's my people. All right, this next question, 
we're not going to vote on this next one because I don't, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So you can just decide where you are silently your answer to this next one. Who is the greatest Superman? Is it, is it Super Jerry whose powers would be preaching? A passion for prayer and asking you to share part of your dessert every time you eat it in front of him? (laughs) Or would it be the man of steel himself? Super Jerry, we love you, but if I ever get kidnapped by a supervillain, I'm not going to hope that you show up. (laughs) And here's the last question. What is the greatest thing about God? Take 45 seconds, turn to your neighbor, and discuss your answer. What is the greatest thing about God? All right, on the count of three, tell me your answer. Everybody at once. I'm a youth pastor. I work with teenagers. I'll be able to hear your answer. I, I promise. One, two, three. All right, I heard, I heard all of you say love and some other things. So today we are in Isaiah 40, a passage that is full of things that show us the greatness of God. And as we look at Isaiah 40 today, what we are going to see is that God's greatness leads us to trust and follow Him. God's greatness leads us to trust and follow Him. It leads us to to put our faith in Him because He is great. We should trust him and obey him. So let's start in verse 9 of Isaiah 40. And we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. And then we'll walk through it together this morning. Starting in verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Or showed him the path of understanding. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. Nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless. And less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? 
As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, at this point in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is looking ahead to the end of the Babylonian exile. Isaiah is looking ahead knowing that the people are going to be exiled to Babylon and he's already looking ahead to the end of this exile and seeing the return of God's people to the promised land. And as he's doing this, he's reminding the people that God is powerful and that God is great and that he will restore their strength. And because of his greatness... The people should worship him. They should trust him. They should follow him. And up until this point, up until chapter 40, what we see in Isaiah is that the Babylonian exile is assumed. In Isaiah 39, 6, we read, The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left says the Lord. But here in our passage, Isaiah is looking past this exile. And as he does, he tells the people of Israel they're they're going to receive double for their sin. But he also proclaims God's comfort to them at the beginning of chapter 40. In verses 1 and 2, it reads, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, if you remember back to last fall, when we were studying through the minor prophets, we saw that the prophets look forward to a near future salvation, and they look to a distant future salvation. Well, in Isaiah 40, the near future salvation that's coming for the people is the return from the Babylonian exile. The distant future salvation is through Jesus. And the even more distant future salvation is the return of Christ. And as we look through this passage today, here's how we're going to break it down. We're going to start at the end and we're going to work our way backwards. Maybe a little different way to go through this passage. But we're going to begin by seeing God's reassurance to his people. By seeing God's promise to strengthen his people. And then we're going to go back and we're going to see how great God is. Because of his greatness, he is able to reassure his people. And then finally, we will see that God is here. God was with his people in Isaiah 40. And God is with his people today. Isaiah is writing to Hebrews that are going to be defeated. They're going to be taken into Babylon. It's not happened yet, but Babylon is, is going to invade. They're going to conquer and the people are going to go into exile. And as the people are in exile, there's going to become time when they complain. When they want God to intervene. And God's not intervening. When they want God to bring them out of the exile. But God doesn't bring them out of the exile. And in verse 27, Isaiah confronts their complaining. God, through Isaiah, I feel like calls the people out for their complaining. But then he goes on to proclaim God's salvation to the people and to encourage the people. Verse 27 says, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. You see, Isaiah goes on to encourage the people in four ways. And what we see is that he encourages them that God is everlasting. God has always been and God will always be. Unlike us, God has no creator. He has always been. He will always be. God is the creator of all things. Because he is the creator of all things, he rules in power over all things. He rules over the things in our lives that we think are small and insignificant. And he rules over the things in our lives that we don't understand. Isaiah says that God does not get tired and he gives strength to those that need it. Coming back to verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary. 
and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Throughout this entire chapter, Isaiah is reminding the people of things that they should already know. He's reminding the people of things that they should remember from the study of God's word. And at this time in history, the study of God's word would have been the first five books of our Old Testament. And Isaiah is reminding the people of the things that God's word has taught them. And as he does, what he is showing the people is that by his very nature, because of who God is, he has not forgotten his people. Their way is not hidden from the Lord. It's not like God put the Hebrews over here in exile and then walked away for a while and forgot where they were and then came back and remembered, oh yeah, they're in Babylon. Let me bring them out of that. God has not forgotten his people. He hasn't then and he hasn't now. The people are suffering because of their sin. But God who is great in mercy is going to rescue them and restore them and bring them out of the exile because of his greatness. God is able to save his people because of his greatness. Because he is so great, he is able to save then, he is able to save now. And we see this, we see his greatness in verses 12 through 26. In this section, Isaiah uses four sets of rhetorical questions to point out how great God is. To remind the people that they can trust God. That they can trust God's faithfulness. That they can lean on Him. That they can follow Him. And all of these questions we're going to see affirm who God is. And here's what I love about all of these rhetorical questions. For the Jews then, and for us today, if you're a follower of Jesus... When Isaiah asks these questions, you already know the answer. You already know the answer to these questions. In the first set of rhetorical questions, they show us God's greatness in nature and in wisdom. Isaiah says that God is so great that with his hand, he both measures the heavens and the waters of the earth. Now, Isaiah 40 shows us, see if I can do this without making a mess. He says that God measures the heavens with the breadth of his hand. And this, I have set many hours this week in my office just reflecting on this. The breadth of your hand is from your thumb to your pinky. For me, it's like eight or nine inches. God has measured the heavens with the breadth of his hand. Isaiah says, with with the hallow of his hand, God has measured the waters of the earth. And this has truly caused me to be in awe of God this week. Because for me to scoop a scoop of water up in my hand, 
I, I can't even quench my thirst with the amount of water that I can scoop with one hand. I mean, that, that's all the water that I can, that I can scoop with one hand. For me, if I were to take a drink, I would have to use both my hands just to get enough water to quench my thirst. And yet Isaiah tells us that God is so deep. God is so great that he has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. There are places where the ocean is six miles deep. And God has measured it in the hollow of his hand. Isaiah tells us that God holds all of the dust in a basket. And he, earn, he learns understanding from no one. Look back with me in verse 12. It reads, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Or showed him the path of understanding? I love what Erwin Lutzer says referring to these passages. He says, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God has never been trying to do something and then all of a sudden figured out how to do it. God has never had to go to YouTube to learn how to remodel something in their house and then go do it. God has never walked into a room forgotten why he was there and then had to remember why he walked into that room. Nothing has ever occurred to our great God because he is complete in his understanding. He is complete in his wisdom and his knowledge. And if creation is small when compared to God, then surely the nations are even Smaller. Isaiah says the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are like a speck of dust when compared to God. Now, Isaiah is not saying that God does not care about the nations of the world. He's saying that when you compare the power of world nations to the power of our God, they are nothing. They cannot compare. For the Jews at this day, at, at this time, Isaiah is saying, even though Babylon seems great, even though Babylon is going to invade and God is going to allow them to conquer you and allow them to take you into exile and their power seems great, when compared to our God, they are nothing. The nations of our world today, if we were to compare their power to God's, they are nothing. Even though there are threats of war and threats from other nations, no nation's power can compare to the power of our God. 
back in verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. In the second set of rhetorical questions, Isaiah shows us that idols do not compare to God. Isaiah is showing the people and he's showing us that God is both unique and nothing compares to him. Now, in some instances today, we will use metaphors to help us understand something about God, something about God's character, things like God is a shepherd, God is a king, God is a warrior, God is our rock. These metaphors help us understand something about who God is. But we don't look at a shepherd and worship it as God. We don't look at a king or a warrior and worship them as if they were God. We're not going to go out today and find the first rock that we see and bow down to it and worship it as if it is God. God is unique and superior to all things. But both during Isaiah's day and today, people bow down to idols. And Isaiah shows us that at every point in its creation, an idol is man-made. He says that a man goes out and either cuts down a tree or takes metal and he fashions it into the shape of an idol. And then man overlays that idol with gold and he fashions silver chains for that idol. And then, and then man attaches it to a platform so that it will sit up and not fall over. And then man bows down and he worships this man-made idol. Now, we, you probably don't have man-made idols like that in your home today. Hopefully none of us are going home and have little idols of other gods in our home. But an idol does not have to be something physical. Anything that you put in the place of God is an idol. Your job can be an idol. Money can be an idol. Relationships can be an idol. Your marriage, your dating relationship, sports can be an idol. Anything that we put in the place of God in our lives is an idol. And just like a physical idol, non-physical idols are man-made too. God doesn't move off his throne so that you can put whatever in his place. A few years ago, we had a few middle school girls in our student ministry that were playing volleyball. They were eighth graders. They were starters. One of them, one of them in particular was really good. She was going to be a starter the next year as a freshman if she committed to everything that her coaches wanted her to do over the summer. It, and it was a ridiculous commitment. It was a ridiculous amount of time that her coaches wanted her to commit 
over the summer so that she'd be ready for high school volleyball. And this student, she was active in our student ministry. She was a worship leader. She was active in other ministries of the church. And she went to her coaches and said, hey, I want to play, but I can't commit to this. And I'm not going to commit to doing all this because I want to do these things over the summer. I want to go to camp. I want to be involved in these ministries and on this mission trip. And her coaches looked at her and said, church is always going to be there. You need to focus on this now. They said, God's always going to be there. You need to focus on this now. My friends, if that's our attitude towards our Lord, then we have a sin issue in our heart. We have a sin issue that we need to repent and turn away from. None of us are promised to see the sunrise tomorrow. And there is no thing in creation more important or greater than our God and a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Going back to verse 18 of Isaiah 40. With whom then... Will you compare God? To what image will you liken Him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. I'm thankful that that student chose to quit playing volleyball, ended her career after eighth grade. Now she leads worship regularly at the church that she's plugged in with. She is still involved in missions and in other ministries. Let's make sure today there are no idols in our life that we are putting in the place of our great God. The third set of rhetorical questions shows us that God is the king of the universe. God is enthroned in the heavens. He is supreme over all of creation, over all the earth, over all its people. God rules. And Isaiah tells us that God is so great that when compared to him, people are like grasshoppers. The heavens are his tent. And our God rules over every prince, over every king, over every president, and over every politician. Because he is the ruler of the universe. Starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. 
In the final set of rhetorical questions, Isaiah again shows us that no one compares to God. There is no one, no thing that is equal to our God. He knows every star in the heavens by name. And not one of them is missing. In verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. I want us to pause right here this morning. The next four slides are four different pictures from the Hubble telescope. And I want us to pause and in the silence of this room where you are in your own heart, I want you to reflect on how great our God is. This God that measures the heavens with the breadth of his hand, that measures the waters with the hallow of his hand that knows every single star by name and not one of them is missing. And yet this great God loves us. So I want us to respond in prayer and in worship this morning. Just in in the next few minutes, we're just going to have moments of silence. And with each picture, you're going to have at least 30 seconds just to reflect on it and then somebody's going to come up and pray on the microphones this morning. It's okay if you pray with your eyes open. If you just want to close your eyes, that's fine too. But in these moments, let's not quickly rush out of the presence of God and let's pause and reflect on just how great He is. We get to call you Father, the God of the universe the one that created the beautiful stars in the sky. We do not have enough words to describe who you are. And as Pastor Corey has said, we can sit for our lifetime trying to fathom you, who you are, just how big you are, Lord. As I described, tried to describe to my daughter this week, that you created the sun and that the sun gives us warmth and that the sun is bright and fills us with joy and so many things. And these statements seem so small to describe just how incredible it is that you made the sun. We see that and then we see your greatness and a tiny little babe being woven together in, in the mother's womb. Lord, your hands that are so big can create something so small and delicate and we see you there too thank you for how you show us yourself and how you reveal us and how we can spend our days trying to know more wanting to know more may you reveal yourself to us and may we forever bow down and worship to you because of these things we love you in jesus name amen God, I love learning more about your creation. This passage in Isaiah, he mentions that the stars are stretching. And I learned this week that scientists have actually discovered that the space 
outer space stretches. Isaiah didn't know that because he had a telescope that could see that. He knew that because you revealed that to him because you are creator. God, I just pray that you would give us a glimpse of that. Help us to not go about our days being so busy that we forget to notice the things that you've created around us. Help us to value the the bugs in the mountains that might be pesky, but you've created them for a purpose. And the more we learn about your creation, the more we learn how intricate and complicated even the tiniest of things are and how you've created things to work together in nature. I just ask that you would give us the eyes and the ears to observe your creation and appreciate how you've created it. Help us to worship you as we pay more attention to your creation. Amen. Father God, as we um, look at these just awe-inspiring images of of the universe and we think of just the most wonderful things we've seen on earth from from the mountains to the depths of the oceans and everything in between, God. Um, God, we know all of this is just but a glimpse of, of your glory. Um, Father, looking at this this picture now and the... the the stars in the sky, um, God, you know them all by name. You know exactly how many they are. And, and again, they, they show us a glimpse of how great you are, Father. Um, and so, God, I pray that, that you would reveal your glory to us, that we would, we would recognize your glory in all of creation. And, and God, that we would long to see, see you more fully um, in eternity, God. Moses... Moses asked to see your glory, and um, you told him that if you if you saw my face, you couldn't you couldn't stand it, and so you just passed by him. And Father, I pray that that we would long long for your glory to be revealed, um, as as you created the world, you created everything, you created land and sea, the animals, the heavens, the earth. Uh, but God, it's in it's human beings who you created in your image. You created to reflect your glory here on earth, God. Um, help us to do that well. Help us to to love others as you've loved them and help us to be mirrors reflecting your glory here on earth. Father God, we we don't have the words to praise you. We, we don't have the words to acknowledge who you truly are. Um, God, help us help us to seek you more and more and I pray that, that the beauty and creation would would point us and point point the world towards you. Lord God, mankind throughout all of time has um, has been measuring and studying and trying to, to figure out things about your creation. Um, and every every generation of um, scientists and astronomers and botanists and biologists have have think have thought that they've they've had a, a, a handle and, and been able to wrap their mind around your creation and um, and then every next generation figures out something new or discovers something um, that was thought to be unfathomable. Uh, we praise you this morning and we say along with the psalmist that the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth proclaims your handiwork. Um, 
we say along with uh, with Paul when he wrote in, to the Romans that, um, that that your creation, the things that you have made, draw us to you. Um, your e- eternal nature, um, your divine nature, and, and 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 who you are, it makes us to to turn our eyes to you. And, and we agree with um, with Isaiah when he when he encouraged your people to turn our eyes up, to lift our, our eyes to you, um, the creator of all of this. And we praise you and we ask for your help in doing that, even as we, we marvel at these things now in this moment and we recognize your greatness in, in the best ways that we can. Um, tomorrow when, when things are overwhelming or situations or or family things or work things, whatever overwhelm us, help us not to forget um, and help us to encourage each other, um, to reach out to others that can encourage us to turn our eyes up, to lift our eyes to you, um, and to recognize and remember um, that you are creator and sustainer of everything around us, and we praise you for that this morning. Amen. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Finally, we see that God is present with his people. In verses 9 through 11, Isaiah comforts the people with good news. And the good news in that day is that the people were going to come out of the exile in Babylon. God was going to restore them back to the promised land. The good news for us today is that Jesus has defeated sin and Satan. In verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty hand. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is where Isaiah points us to Jesus. All of the verbs here in verse 11 in the Hebrew are in the imperfect tense. And this tense designates a continuous action, something that is still ongoing. Jesus is the good shepherd that gathers and tends his flock. Jesus is the one who carries his flock close to his heart. Jesus is the one who gently leads all those who follow him. If you are here today or if you are watching online and you do not know the greatness of our God, it begins by surrendering your life to Jesus. It begins with a relationship with him. So we should respond this morning to the greatness of God by trusting Him, by worshiping Him, and by following Him.
the greatest thing about God is that the creator of the universe who knows every star by name individually knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. See, the greatest thing about our God is that we get to know Him. He sent His Son to die in our place, to pay the price for our sins so that we can have a part of Christ's inheritance. So that we can serve Him and follow Him and be a part of His kingdom. And this morning, we, know, we want to respond again to our great God by worshiping Him. So I want to invite you to stand. And I'm going to pray for us. And then we are going to worship our God before we go out this morning. Father, You are our great God. You are the Creator of all things. And we praise You today for Your greatness. Lord, there are not enough words to accurately describe how great You are. We are humbled by You today. We pray that our worship would be pleasing to You, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.